What's up, everyone? Welcome to the 10th episode of The Power of Bold. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of The Power of Bold. I'm Adam, and I'm your guide as we explore risk-taking, entrepreneurship, and bold living. So in the last episode, we reviewed Scott Adams' book, How to Fail at Almost Everything and Still Win Big. And even if you haven't heard of Scott Adams, I'd recommend that you check out that episode. I enjoyed reading his book since he has a pretty unique perspective on a wide selection of topics like goals, success, and politics. So like I said in the intro to that episode, Adams was one of the first people to confidently state that Donald Trump would win the presidential election. As a trained hypnotist, Adams said that Trump is a master persuader, that facts essentially don't matter, and he ultimately ended up being right. So Adams is coming out with a book on October 31st called Win Bigly, Persuasion in a World Where Facts Don't Matter, and I'm definitely going to check it out. If it's worth reviewing, I'll dedicate an episode towards it. But in the meantime, we're going to move away from Scott Adams and take on another book for this week's episode. This book isn't explicitly a business book, but it's one of the classics. It's one of the first best-selling self-help books that has ever been published. You may have heard of it. It's called How to Win Friends and Influence People by the renowned author Dale Carnegie. The book is chock full of insights, so it's impossible to cover all of them in this episode. Instead, what I'm going to do is briefly describe the four major sections in the book, and then go over what the most notable principles, in my opinion, and how we can apply them in our daily lives. With that said, let's jump into it. So, in recent years, I've taken a personal interest into personal finance and investing. And as I've been trying to educate myself, I've come to learn more and more about Warren Buffett. I, of course, knew some of the basics about him, that he was obscenely rich, that he was a value investor, and that he loves investing in insurance companies. But I came across one story that really piqued my interest. Buffett studied under the godfather of value investing, Benjamin Graham, at Columbia University in New York. It's where he learned the foundations of investing, leading him to such an impressive and successful career. But when asked about how he achieved his success, Buffett often credits something that I initially didn't expect. He said that, quote, the most important degree he has is from a Dale Carnegie course. It's pretty astounding that Buffett said this, despite the fact that he went to elite schools and studied under legends in finance and value investing. But for those of you that don't know, Dale Carnegie was a writer and lecturer who wrote renowned books on self-improvement, confidence, fighting fear, public speaking, and interpersonal success. When Buffett referred to a Dale Carnegie course, he was alluding to modern-day Dale Carnegie trainings, which focus on practicing some of these skills outlined in his books, all in a supportive, open environment. The courses are on topics like high-impact presentations, how to communicate with diplomacy and tact, leadership training for managers, and public speaking mastery. However, Buffett was specifically referring to the so-called classic Dale Carnegie course. 
And this course is described in the following way on the Carnegie Training website. It says, this effective communication training course will help you master the human relation skills demanded in today's tough business environment. You'll learn to improve human relation skills, increase communication effectiveness, strengthen interpersonal relationships, manage stress, and handle fast-changing workplace conditions. You'll develop more effective communication skills and be better equipped to perform as a persuasive communicator, problem solver, and focus leader. What's more, you develop a take-charge attitude to initiate with confidence and enthusiasm. So I haven't taken that course or any of the other Dale Carnegie courses, but I've heard nothing but good things about them. Buffett isn't the only one that has raved that the courses have changed his life. The one caveat, however, is that the courses are expensive. They can often be thousands of dollars. That said, much of the content in the classic Dale Carnegie course is in Carnegie's classic book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. It's a foundational book, and I believe you'll get many of the insights from the book. The courses are there to kind of hold you accountable and force you to put the lessons into practice, which can be really valuable in and of itself. So if you'd like to learn more about Dale Carnegie training, I'll put a link in the show notes. But with that said, we're going to go over the book itself. So, How to Win Friends and Influence People. This is Carnegie's most famous book. It was first published in 1936 in the midst of the Great Depression, likely to help people get out of ruts and pull their lives together. It was one of the first self-help books ever published, and from 1936 to today, it has sold over 30 million copies. It goes without saying, but it's a classic and one of my favorite self-help books that I've ever read. It can be a life-changing book. Most of the advice is pretty simple on the surface, yet it's actually pretty difficult to consistently do in practice. It's so much easier said than done, as you'll come to discover. Now, the book has four sections, obviously all on principles on how to win friends and influence people. They are, first, fundamental techniques in handling people, Second, six ways to make people like you. Third, 12 ways to win people to your way of thinking. And fourth, be a leader. How to change people without giving offense or arousing resentment. All of these sections are great, and I'm not going to go through every single principle in every single section. Instead, what I'll do is go over each of the four sections and describe some of the most notable insights that stood out to me. And just to be clear, I'm looking at the revised 1981 edition of the book. It's all relatively the same, though, so if you pick up a copy, you'll know what I'm talking about. Okay, let's proceed to the content of the book. Before getting to the first section, Fundamental Techniques in Handling People, Carnegie first talks about why this book was written. It's a great way to set up the book, and if you purchase the book, I don't think you should skip it. So as I mentioned, Carnegie was a well-known writer and teacher of educational courses for business people and professionals in New York. He first began teaching public speaking courses, but then discovered that people needed more training in what he calls the fine art of getting along with people in everyday business and social contacts. And I think this is especially true in today's age among millennials, who prefer texting and digital interactions over face-to-face contact. Carnegie emphasizes that dealing with people is probably the biggest problem that we face, especially if we're in business, and that about 15% of one's financial success is due to the actual technical knowledge, and 85% is due to what he calls skill in human engineering, specifically personality and the ability to lead people. 
So when I read this, what came to mind to me was the famous Moravian study, where less than 10% of communication is actually the words that you speak to another person or a group. Most of the communication is coming through voice tone and body language. So technical knowledge in our words are not as important as our physical demeanor, tone, and ability to interact and work with people. And I'll say it again because it's so important. One who has technical knowledge plus the ability to express ideas, to assume leadership, and to arouse enthusiasm among people is headed for higher earning power. And that's really the power of this book. It teaches you these soft skills that you can use regardless of your industry. This idea also somewhat relates back to what I mentioned on the last episode, with Scott Adams saying that you should essentially collect skills. He wasn't the greatest cartoonist or funniest writer, but combined, they were a powerful force. So combining these hard technical skills and these soft skills as described in the book will get you far and will make you richer. If you feel weak in any of these skills, I would consider taking a class, whether it's a Carnegie course or not, or even joining a group like Toastmasters. So in the intro, Carnegie also mentions that this is an action book. Sure, it's easy to read books like this one and other inspiring self-help books, like Think and Grow Rich, and just think about implementing the lessons. But Carnegie says that you absolutely have to make an effort to practice these principles. Learning is an active process, and we learn by doing. So he recommends that we apply the rules at every opportunity, because if we don't, we'll forget them quickly. And this intuitively makes sense. Because we're trying to form new habits, it requires time and persistence and daily application. Carnegie even suggests having your spouse, child, or someone else make you pay a dollar or some monetary amount each time they catch you violating a certain rule. Basically, whatever you need to do, you need to go beyond the passive and embrace the active. Dog ear and mark up the book if necessary. It's what I do. Self-examine and review your progress. Think about the mistakes you made, what you did right, and what you can learn from these experiences, and then critically put that learning into practice. I know, it takes a ton of work, but Carnegie swears by it, and you'll notice you'll make less and less mistakes. So as I'm going through some of the insights in the book, keep this intro in mind. No matter what I say, you need to put these principles in practice. Otherwise, it's kind of a waste of time. Okay, so part one is called Fundamental Techniques in Handling People. I'm going to lay out the one-sentence principle from each of the four sections, and then go into detail where necessary. So in this section, the principles in handling people are, first, don't criticize, condemn, or complain, Second, give honest and sincere appreciation. And third, arouse in the other person an eager want. Since this is a shorter section, I'm going to briefly talk about all three of these principles that will help you handle people. As you'll discover throughout all four sections, the goal is focusing on the other person, or people, that you're interacting with. To get what you want, whether it's friends or influence, you need to give sincere attention to the other person's wants or needs getting in their shoes, and fulfilling a need. And as Carnegie says, the key word here is sincere. So in this section, I liked Carnegie's principle on avoiding criticism, condemnation, or complaints. On the surface, it makes sense if you want to make friends, make a sale, or gain influence. You don't want to hang around people that are constantly complaining about their life or other people's lives, 
whether it's to their face or indirectly. And this is obviously true in either a business or professional setting. But Carnegie also says that criticizing people is futile because it puts the criticized person on the defensive and usually makes him strive to justify himself. It wounds the target's pride, hurts his or her sense of importance, and arouses resentment. He makes this point by saying that even famous criminals like Al Capone and others rarely, if ever, blame themselves for anything. So what about the people with whom you and I come in contact? Even if we're right about what we're saying, by criticizing others, we often incur resentment. It can demoralize the target and still not correct the situation that has been condemned. If you're trying to change their behavior, it's not that wise to come at it from a critical or negative angle. But there does come a time when you want to criticize people, so what do you do? Carnegie suggests following the advice of Abraham Lincoln and Mark Twain, who wrote nasty letters criticizing others, for Lincoln's some of his generals, but ultimately they kept those letters in their desk drawers, never sending them to the recipients. It's really a way of getting the benefits of catharsis without the cost. So for this first principle of bypassing criticism, condemnation, or complaints, Carnegie says that we must remember we are not dealing with creatures of logic. We're dealing with creatures of emotion who have prejudices and are motivated by pride and vanity. Instead of condemning people, we should try to understand them, figure out why they do what they do. It's a lot more profitable than criticism, as it breeds sympathy, tolerance, and kindness. So, that's the first principle of this subsection on how to handle people. Don't criticize, condemn, or complain about others. The next principle on how to handle people centers on what he calls the big secret of dealing with people, which is satisfying their desire to be important. People crave appreciation and feeling important. Carnegie says it's one of the chief distinguishing differences between mankind and animals. Compared to animals, humans are proud creatures, and all of us crave a feeling of importance. It's this desire that leads people to pursue the creation of business empires, or on the opposite side, to join gangs and engage in criminal activity. He even talks about people in psychiatric hospitals, who are considered insane because in insanity, they find a feeling of importance that they're unable to achieve in the world of reality. And then he has a killer line. If some people are so hungry for a feeling of importance that they actually go insane to get it, imagine what miracle you and I can achieve by giving people honest appreciation this side of insanity. And it's so true. If people want it so badly and you can give it to them, they'll remember you and appreciate you even more and will even be swayed by your requests and things that you want them to do for you. You're playing a long game here. And this idea of giving others the feeling of importance is even more important if you're a manager. He quotes a legendary investor and financial executive Charles Schwab, who once said, I consider my ability to arouse enthusiasm among my people the greatest asset I possess, and the way to develop the best that is in a person is by appreciation and encouragement. I'm anxious to praise but loath to find fault. If I like anything, I'm hearty in my approbation and lavish in my praise. And I find this to be so true. We've all worked in jobs where we didn't feel appreciated or didn't feel important, and it likely made us feel uncomfortable and dissatisfied, perhaps spurring us to even quit. So if you're a manager, follow Schwab's lead and be lavish in your praise. Appreciation is so powerful, and if you can make a person feel important, 
they'll go with you to the ends of the earth. Having said all this, Carnegie makes a critical point. The appreciation has to be sincere. We're not talking about flattery here, which is insincere. Appreciation comes from the heart. It's unselfish, and it's universally admired. Basically, to sum it up, we have to figure out the other person's good points, forget flattery, and give honest, sincere appreciation. Carnegie says the following, If we're hearty in our approbation and lavish in our praise, others will cherish our words and treasure them and repeat them over a lifetime. Finally, the third principle from this section on how to handle people is to arouse in the other person an eager want. This is so important that Carnegie says, He who can do this has the whole world with him. He who cannot walks a lonely way. The only way on earth to influence other people is to talk about what they want and show them how to get it. He says that tomorrow you may want to persuade somebody to do something. But before you speak, pause and ask yourself, how can I make this other person want to do it? This is the critical question. Henry Ford understood it and said, if there is any one secret of success, it lies in the ability to get the other person's point of view and see things from that person's angle as well as from your own. It's so simple, but Carnegie says 90% of people on earth ignore it 90% of the time. We're mostly focused on our wants and desires, and everything is about me, me, me. So if you're writing an email or a letter to someone to get them to do something you want, don't begin by speaking about your own problems, as the recipient probably isn't that interested. Again, I'm going to say that one more time. Don't begin by speaking about your own problems. Also, ask if your approach is inconveniencing your target. You want to make things as easy as possible for them. Put the thing that the recipient is interested in first. Write how you can help them and focus on their wants. By doing this, the recipient will want to help you out as well, without them realizing it. And I think this is especially true if you're in sales. You need to see things from the customer's angle, which doesn't happen often. Now, once again, Carnegie also mentions this idea of sincerity. He says that looking at the person's point of view and arousing an eager want isn't to be construed with manipulating the person so that he'll do something that's only for your benefit and his detriment. It should be win-win, whether you're dealing with a child, your boss, or your spouse. Ultimately, the only way on earth to influence other people is to talk about what they want and show them how to get it. By doing that, you'll actually get what you want. Reciprocity is a powerful thing. And if you want to learn more about that, I'd recommend reading Robert Caldini's book called Influence. But again, the desire to help the other person has to be genuine. You cannot manipulate your way through this. Okay, that was part one of the book. Part two of the book is called Six Ways to Make People Like You. So like the last section, let's go over the principles here. There are six. Those principles are, first, become genuinely interested in other people. Second, smile. Third, remember that a person's name is to that person the sweetest and most important sound in any language. Fourth, be a good listener. Encourage others to talk about themselves. Fifth, talk in terms of the other person's interests. And sixth, make the other person feel important and do it sincerely. This is another good part of the book, and it includes some actionable insights that are really simple to implement. The hard part is regularly doing it, as you'll discover after reading the book. Now, I've got to mention the first paragraph of the first chapter. 
Carnegie says that if you are reading this book to find friends, you should study the technique of the greatest winner of friends the world has ever known. And when Carnegie says this, he's actually referring to dogs. It's pretty hilarious, actually. He says that when you get within 10 feet of a dog, he'll begin to wag his tail. If you stop and pat him, he'll almost jump out of his skin to show you how much he likes you. And you know behind his show of affection, there's no ulterior motive. He doesn't want to sell you any real estate, and he doesn't want to marry you. Dogs know this instinctually, that you can make more friends in two months by becoming genuinely interested in others than you can in two years by trying to get other people to be interested in you. People are usually not interested in others, though. They're interested in themselves all the time. Carnegie cites a telephone company survey which says that the word most frequently used in phone conversations is, you guessed it, I. So with all this evidence, he says that the first principle to make people like you is to become genuinely interested in them. All of us like people who admire us. So if we want to make friends, let's put ourselves out to do things for other people. Sure, these things often require time, energy, unselfishness, and thoughtfulness, but they work. If you want to make friends, greet people with animation and enthusiasm. And this includes speaking with people on the telephone. Become genuinely interested in them and their problems. They'll become interested in you if you initiate first. So throughout the section on ways to make people like you, Carnegie touches on some other simple things that you can do to make good impressions. Smiling, for one. Obviously, insincere grins don't do it. You have to be sincere. And smiling on the phone is critical as well. The person on the other line can tell. So if there are times where you don't feel like smiling... Carnegie recommends that you actually force yourself to smile and act as if you're already happy. And he says something really insightful associated with this. Happiness doesn't depend on outward conditions. It depends on inner conditions. Two people may be facing the same conditions, yet one may be happy and one may be sad because of different mental attitudes which we can control. So even if you have to fake it, you'll actually feel better. The next critical principle in this section on how to make people like you is that it's so important to remember and use a person's name. Carnegie says the average person is more interested in his or her name than in all other names on earth put together. So if you remember their name and recall it easily, you have paid a subtle but very effective compliment. However, and this is crucial, if you forget or misspell the name, you're at a massive disadvantage. So the key is to remember the names of people you meet, which again can be difficult for people since we're always focused on what we want to say or how we think we're being perceived by the other person. But really, there is magic contained in a name. It makes a person feel unique among others. So when interacting with the person, acknowledge his or her uniqueness. It'll go a long way. While it can be difficult to remember a person's name, there are many ways to do it. One way, for example, is to associate that person's name with someone that you know. However you do it, just remember that recalling a person's name is so critical. The next three principles from this section are focused on the actual conversation itself. Being a good listener, talking in terms of the other person's interests, and making the other person feel important while doing it sincerely. All of these go back to the initial point of making the other person the focus of your interaction. The main things are being a giver and becoming genuinely focused on the other person, stopping and paying attention to who they are 
what their wants and interests are, etc., etc. People just essentially want an audience, and they want to feel important. In fact, they already think they are important. So ultimately, Carnegie concludes the section by quoting Benjamin Disraeli. And Disraeli says, Talk to people about themselves, and they will listen for hours. If you want to know more about these principles, you should pick up the book. But with that said, we're going to move on to the next section, which is titled, How to Win People to Your Way of Thinking. Now, this section especially spoke to me. I saw it useful in my career as an attorney and currently as an entrepreneur who is trying to create buy-in for my products and services. Everything in life is about sales, and Carnegie understood that. So Carnegie establishes 12 principles on how to get people to your way of thinking. I'm going to list them now. They are, first, the only way to get the best of an argument is to avoid it. Second, show respect for the other person's opinions, never say you're wrong. Third, if you are wrong, admit it quickly and empathetically. Fourth, begin in a friendly way. Fifth, get the other person saying yes, yes, immediately. Sixth, let the other person do a great deal of the talking. Seventh, let the other person feel that the idea is his or hers. Eighth, try honestly to see things from the other person's point of view. Ninth, be sympathetic with the other person's ideas and desires. Tenth, appeal to the nobler motives. Eleventh, dramatize your ideas. And twelfth, throw down a challenge. Now, this is a meteor part of the book, and it's impossible to go over everything in the time that we have. But the principles I want to discuss a bit further are avoiding arguments, showing respect for others' opinions, and letting another person think your idea is his or hers. The first principle, to get the best out of an argument is to avoid it, is one of those principles that is so much easier said than done. And it was even tougher for me, since I had to make arguments for a living when I was practicing at my law firm. But Carnegie does adamantly claim that the best way to win friends and influence people is to avoid arguments. Carnegie says that 9 out of 10 times, an argument ends with each of the contestants more firmly convinced than ever that he or she is absolutely right. Even if you win an argument, you still lose it. I found this insight really fascinating. If you triumph over the other person and shoot their argument full of holes and show that they aren't smart, you still lose. You'll feel fine, but you'll have made the other person feel inferior. You will have hurt his or her pride, they'll resent your triumph, and they'll probably still hold the same opinion. It'll be an empty victory because you'll never get your opponent's goodwill. Now, this insight applies not only in your job, potential arguments with your boss, for example, but in your personal life with your family and friends. Arguments may feel good at the time, but they have serious consequences even if you quote-unquote win. If the goal is to make friends and influence people, consider Carnegie's advice and try to avoid arguments when possible. I'm not saying you need to absolutely stop every argument, that'd be nearly impossible. But just be more aware of when you do it, and even better, cut back if you can. And even if you do get involved in an argument, steer it towards an amicable discussion. Look for areas of agreement during the discussion. Control your temper, and promise to think over the other person's ideas and study them carefully. This will make everyone feel better. Tied in with this is the second principle. That is, show respect for the other person's opinions. This is key. Carnegie says that if you are going to prove anything, or convince someone of anything, try to do it so subtly, so adroitly, that no one will feel that you're doing it. 
Again, don't be manipulative. If you're in an argument, admit that you may be wrong, but that you want to examine the facts. Nobody is going to ever object to you saying, I may be wrong, let's examine the facts. Now, this may feel a bit too conservative, especially to someone that consider themselves to be more aggressive. But again, the goal here is to win people to your way of thinking. You can try to overpower them and force your opinion or ideas down their throat, but you're making your path way more difficult. Ultimately, Carnegie says that few people like to listen to truths that reflect on their judgment. When we're wrong, we may admit it to ourselves. And if we're handled gently, we may admit it to others and even take pride in our frankness. But if someone says we're wrong and tries to ram it down our throat, it's only going to lead to disaster. So a little tact and the discipline to not tell the other person that they're wrong can really go a long way. Try to avoid arguing with your customer or spouse or adversary. Don't tell them that they're wrong and don't get them stirred up. Use diplomacy instead. And to put it bluntly, this idea of diplomacy is echoed throughout all the principles in this section on how to win people to your way of thinking. The idea of empathy and seeing things from another's perspective is critical as well. There's just one more principle from this section I want to talk about. And that's this whole idea of letting another person think your idea is his or hers. I think this is such an important idea that I want to spend a few seconds on it. Instead of trying to force people to your way of thinking, it's so, so much easier to make them think that your idea is theirs. It's almost like mental jujitsu to some extent. Carnegie says that no one likes to feel that he or she is being sold something or told to do something, which is obviously true. We prefer to be in control, that we're acting on our own ideas, and that we're being consulted about our wishes, wants, and thoughts. To illustrate this idea of implanting your idea into another person's mind, Carnegie speaks about an advisor to President Woodrow Wilson. The advisor said that the best way to convert Wilson to an idea was to plant it in his mind casually, but so as to interest him in it, so as to get him thinking about it on his own account. Hearing Wilson saying that he developed an idea, which was actually the advisor's, was exactly what the advisor wanted. He didn't interrupt Wilson and say that that was my idea. He didn't care about the credit. He wanted results. And he even later gave Wilson public credit for the ideas as well. It just again goes back to this idea of empathy. Understanding human wants and needs, and catering to those wants, including the subtle narcissism that all of us have. Just remember this, look at things from others' perspectives, and then act accordingly to fulfill their wants. You'll subtly get them to come to your perspective. Humans crave sympathy, so if you want to win people to your way of thinking, give it to them. And just one more thing from this section on how to win people to your way of thinking. Carnegie spends one chapter focusing on the use of drama or showmanship to sell an idea. He says the movies do it. TV does it, so why don't you? Now, I immediately started thinking of Steve Jobs, who was known for the dramatic, revealing the iPod and iPhone at huge keynotes with thousands of adoring fans, or even unveiling prototypes to insiders by putting a black cloth above the prototype and then dramatically revealing it. Carnegie says that this is the day of dramatization. The truth has to be made vivid, interesting, and dramatic. You have to use showmanship. Now, while you don't have to become the next P.T. Barnum or anything like that, I think Carnegie is right, but depending on the circumstances. 
you have to know when to use more panache than usual, depending on the context. For instance, emphasizing showmanship when trying to convince a law firm partner to adopt a way of thinking is different than trying to sell an iPhone or convince someone to buy your new product. Just use your best judgment and realize that showmanship can be the one thing that distinguishes you from others and helps you persuade another person to do something. Okay, let's move on to the final section of the book. It's on leadership and how to change people without giving offense or arousing resentment. So once again, let's go over the principles in this section. There are nine principles to help you change people's attitudes and behavior without offending them. First, begin with praise and honest appreciation. Second, call attention to people's mistakes indirectly. Third, talk about your own mistakes before criticizing the other person. Fourth, ask questions instead of giving direct orders. Fifth, let the other person save face. Sixth, praise the slightest improvement and praise every improvement. Seventh, give the other person a fine reputation to live up to. Eighth, use encouragement. Make the fault seem easy to correct. And ninth, make the other person happy about doing the thing you suggest. Again, there's a bit of mental jujitsu going on here. But like the other principles I mentioned, it's about getting into the head of the other person, understanding their wants and desires, and catering to those wants and desires, knowing that they'll reciprocate once you put them first. So I'll just go into detail on a few of these principles. First off, it seems like Carnegie lays the foundation for the compliment sandwich to some extent, but I'll explain the difference in a minute. He first says that if there's some fault that we see from a subordinate at work, start with praise and honest appreciation. He says that beginning with praise is like the dentist who begins work with Novocaine. The patient still gets a drilling, but the Novocaine is painkilling. So that's pretty simple. But I think one of the most interesting principles from this chapter is on how to criticize and not be hated for it. He tells the story of Charles Schwab, who was passing through one of his steel mills when he came across some of his employees smoking. But they were smoking below a sign that said no smoking. Instead of belittling the employees, which would have been the intuitive and easy thing to do, he handed each employee a cigar and said, I'll appreciate it, boys, if you smoke these on the outside. This is really critical to understand. The employees knew that they had broken a rule, but they admired Schwab because he said nothing about it and gave them a little present and made them feel important. So Carnegie says many people begin their criticism with sincere praise, followed by the word but, and then praise at the end, which is the compliment sandwich. Carnegie says, however, that the praise seems like a contrived lead-in to a critical inference of failure, which strains your credibility. But if you replace but with and, magical things happen. You're calling attention to the mistake indirectly, but not offering direct criticism, which is especially good for sensitive people who bitterly resent such criticism. So Carnegie offers an example here. If you want to get your son or daughter to do even better in a course they struggle with in school, you can say something like, we're really proud of you for raising your grades this term and this class, and by continuing the same effort next term, your grade can be up with all the other grades that you have. This is instead of saying, we're proud of you for raising your grades, but if you worked harder on algebra, for instance, the results would have been better. I think this is a true and important insight. 
you can call attention to people's mistakes indirectly, and by doing so, you'll preserve the goodwill that you have with them. So finally, I want to talk about one last principle from this section. The chapter is titled, How to Spur People On to Success, and the essential principle is praising the slightest and every improvement of your subordinates. Carnegie is circling back to earlier points he made in the book, specifically that people like feeling important and like being liked, complimented, and praised. If you tap into that feeling, it'll inspire the other person to keep improving and keep delivering for you. So much in our society, we hear about reasons why we can't do things or that we're not good enough to do certain things. And this was common in Carnegie's era as well. He provides an example by saying that years ago, from when he wrote the book, a 10-year-old boy was working in a factory in Naples. He longed to be a singer, but his first teacher discouraged him. You can't sing, he said. But his mother, who was a poor peasant, praised him and told him she knew he could sing, she could already see improvement, and she made sacrifices, going barefoot in order to save money for music lessons. The mother's praise and encouragement changed the boy's life. The boy was Enrico Caruso, who became one of the greatest and most famous opera singers of his age. Really, we don't know if that praise and encouragement was a large or only factor that made Caruso what he became. But it just makes sense that yelling, rather than encouraging a subordinate, is often the wrong road to take. Now, there are exceptions, like in sports where coaches yell at players, for example. But generally speaking, in our day-to-day lives, praising improvements is a massive thing, and it'll get your subordinates or employees to work even harder to please you. But even beyond that, while you can and should offer general praise, specific praise is even better. Specifically point out why a subordinate's work improved or is superior. By singling out a specific accomplishment, the praise becomes much more meaningful to the person to whom it was given. Specific praise comes off as sincere, not something the other person may be saying just to make one feel good. Nobody wants insincerity. No one wants flattery. So you have to be sincere not only with this principle, but every principle in the book. They all must come from the heart. Carnegie says that he isn't advocating a bag of tricks. He's talking about a new way of life. So that's a broad overview of the four sections of the book, interspaced with several principles which really spoke to me. We went through a lot, and I hope you enjoyed my breakdown of several principles from the book. It's such a classic, and it's one of the best-selling books in American history. Now, just so you know, there's an updated version that you may want to check out. It's called How to Win Friends and Influence People in the Digital Age, and I'll provide a link in the show notes. But I think even simply getting the older editions is fine. The lessons are timeless, and it'll do wonders if you're looking to build your network, lead a team, or convince people to your way of thinking. And who knows, you may like the book so much that you may want to take a Dale Carnegie course in your city. If you do, let me know how it goes. In any event, this book can be a life-changer, so long as you work to implement the principles. But if you do, you'll likely see massive changes in your life. I can't recommend it enough. So that's it for this week's episode. Stay in touch by connecting on social media and visit thepowerofbold.com for show notes. And feel free to write a review on iTunes if you're liking what you hear. Thanks again for tuning in, and I'll see you next time.